Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Red Salute, welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. This episode, we're going to begin our read-through of Rethinking Socialism. Again, I'm going to skip an intro. I know COVID is still raging, but as I mentioned last episode, I'm going to have Jay Mufuad Paul on probably the evening of the 6th of April. We'll talk a lot about COVID, so I'm saving most of my own personal analysis or questions about COVID for, for that interview. As with the last two read-throughs, Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement and the Fundamental Documents of the Communist Party of Peru, I am having physical copies of these printed out um, for free. So if you want a copy of that for yourself or a group you're working with, definitely hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod. And if you want to support the show at all, which is greatly appreciated but completely unnecessary, you can do so at Anchor FM. Just search for Manifesting Podcast and click on the support button. All right, let's go ahead and get into the book. Chapter 1, Rethinking Socialism. What is Socialist Transition? Socialist transition is the period of time that transforms a non-communist society to a communist society. During the socialist transition, there is no certain predetermined path by which policies and events can be judged to determine whether this path is being followed. Instead, the analysis of socialist transition depends on the general direction of the transition. Therefore, one single and isolated event cannot determine whether the transition is socialist or capitalist. We have no predetermined path in mind and, thus, have no specific yardsticks to measure our evaluation. As Lenin said, quote, We do not claim that Marx or the Marxists know the road to socialism in all its completeness. That is nonsense. We know the direction of this road. We know what class forces lead it along. But concretely and practically, it will be learned from the experiences of the million who take up the task." Unquote. There are, however, some general and broad guidelines on the direction of transition towards communism. Most generally accept that socialism, or what Marx called the elementary stage of communism, is a stage of development when the direct producers gain control of the means of production and distribution is made, quote, to each according to his work, unquote. Under capitalism, Capitalists own the means of production, and direct producers have no control. Since the purpose of production under capitalism is value valorization, capitalists must relentlessly extract as much surplus value as possible from the workers. The purpose of production under socialism, on the other hand, is to produce products of use value to meet the needs of the people. Thus, socialism represents a fundamental change in the capitalist relations of production. It is the antithesis of capitalism. These general guidelines give the direction which is a developmental process of transforming the relations of production from commodity production to non-commodity production. Correspondingly, there have to be fundamental changes in the political, social, and cultural aspects of the society. The socialist transition is by no means a smooth one. 
it is marked by many twists and turns. Expected setbacks and retreats occur. However, the general direction is always clear. Due to certain circumstances, retreats are sometimes necessary before advances. In such cases, the reasons behind the retreats should be clearly explained. 1. Re-examine the concepts of state ownership and economic planning. A. State ownership of the means of production does not equate with socialist relations of production. In countries which attempted to establish socialism, as a rule, the state first took the step to nationalize industries. Therefore, legal transfer of means of production to the state has often been taken as the beginning of socialism. In other words, conventional analysis often equates state ownership of the means of production to socialism. We disagree with such an analysis because when the legal transfer occurred, there was no way to judge the nature of the transition, socialist or capitalist. Thus, we do not regard legal transfer of the means of production to the state as the point of departure on the embarkment of socialism. Judicial change in the ownership was only a point of reference. It was merely an index that marked the historical development until that time. Judicial change in ownership provided the possibility for future changes. Whether the transition was socialist or capitalist depended on the concrete events after the legal transfers. We first need to clarify the meaning of state ownership. State ownership exists both in a capitalist system and in the transition period toward communism. State ownership simply means that the state has effective control over the means of production. During the transition, state ownership does not in any way imply a change in the relations of production. Under capitalism, the state apparatus may take effective control over the means of production of some enterprises and make them state-owned. There are many reasons for the state to take ownership of the means of production of some enterprises in a capitalist country. The most important one, probably, is that state ownership makes it possible for the state to steer, in a limited way, the direction of development and thus serves to complement and to enhance the accumulation of capital in both the state sector and the private sector. For example, the state may own large enterprises in utilities, transportation, communication, banking, etc. Another reason for state ownership under capitalism in the third world countries is to defend certain enterprises against foreign takeover. When a third world country tries to develop its economy independently and its domestic private capital is very weak, state ownership is often the only way to fend off foreign capital. For our analysis of the transition period between capitalism and communism, Making the distinction between the legal transfer of ownership of the means of production to the state and the beginning of socialist transition is very important to clarify the question of revisionism. In many countries, China included, the Communist Party claimed and continues to claim that it practiced socialism because the majority of their industries were, or are, still state-owned, when in fact the transition was already reversed from socialist to capitalist. At the current time, the Chinese Communist Party uses state ownership as an indicator of practicing socialism in order to legitimize its rule. As we explained earlier, state ownership exists in both capitalist systems during the period of transition, but state ownership does not in any way indicate or express the relations of production. Marx distinguished judicial change from mill change in the relations of production. Marx criticized Proudhon because Proudhon considered the legal aspect, not the real form, as the relations of production. For the same reason, we differ from the traditional Chinese use of the term. After the Communist Party overthrew the Nationalists and established the People's Government in 1949, the new government confiscated all bureaucratic capital and foreign capital. 
It nationalized all major assets in transportation, communication, and manufacturing. Then, in 1952, it completed the land reform. After 1952, the government took several steps to nationalize the remaining private capital, and it also took several steps in the cooperative movements in agriculture. The government legally transferred the ownership of the means of production to the state and to the collectives. China called, and still calls, the period between 1952 to 1956 the transition to socialism, and the period since 1956, socialism. According to our analysis, during the period of 1949 through 1978, the state instituted policies that clearly indicated the direction of the transition was towards communism. Therefore, the transition was socialist. On the other hand, the policy of Deng's reform since 1979 has clearly indicated that the direction has been reversed towards capitalism. Therefore, the transition since 1979 is capitalist. The analysis above should not be mistaken to mean that state ownership of the means of production is not necessary during the socialist transition, and thus justifies the massive privatization that has been carried out in China under Deng's reform. We will explain this point further in our analysis below. We will also explain the difference between legal ownership and economic ownership. B. State participation in planning does not mean a socialist economy. Planning versus market is another measurement used by conventional analysis to distinguish capitalist transition and socialist transition. This kind of analysis often equates planning with socialism and market with capitalism. Like state ownership, the state and the capitalist system also uses planning as an instrument to steer the direction of the economy. In many capitalist countries, the state participates in planning which can take place with or without the legal transfer of ownership to the state. Although it varies among capitalist countries, the state apparatus in capitalist countries has played an important role in both direct production through ownership and planning. The issue of the extent of state participation in these activities has been debated among the bourgeoisie economists in the U.S. between the conservatives and liberals in capitalist countries for many decades. The basic contradiction of capitalism is the socialization of production and the private ownership of the means of production. As long as the capitalist system exists, the intrinsic contradiction will manifest itself through periodic and deepening crises. Since the Great Depression, the state and capitalist countries has attempted to deal with problems resulting from this basic contradiction. The state has used the power vested in them to regulate the business cycles through the Keynesian fiscal and monetary policies. To deal with the problem of economic fluctuation and long-term stagnation, the state has also actively participated in building the public infrastructure and managing the labor power, the employment, education, and training programs, and the unemployment and welfare programs. Through credit policies, low interest and guaranteed loans, the U.S. federal government helps the expansion of the housing industry. The military buildup boosts the defense industry. The state also helps regulate the financial markets in order to facilitate the link between financial capital and production capital. In the circulation sphere, the state regulates and promotes domestic and international trade. To enhance the competitiveness of U.S. business in the international market, the U.S. government provides export subsidies and export credits to corporations. Local governments also joined in by offering corporations, quote, the most favorable investment environment, unquote, which includes providing the corporations with building sites, roads, power, and tax concessions. The purpose of state engagement in all these activities is to facilitate the accumulation of capital, yet the expenses involved are paid by the taxpayers, the majority of whom are workers. 
In other advanced capitalist countries, state participation in planning is even more extensive. In Japan, for instance, the state has both short-term and long-term plans for the economy, which give indications of target rates of growth, energy use, the need for labor power, etc. In developing countries, state planning also plays an important role. In Taiwan, for example, the state has actively promoted an export-led growth economy. It projects the need for future public infrastructure to facilitate the transportation of goods for export. The state has also been directly involved in the planning of energy use, the production of raw materials for export, manufacturing, steel and plastic, etc. Therefore, it is a myth that in the capitalist countries there is a, quote, free enterprise system, unquote, which solely relies on the market mechanism to function. Planning is not the opposite of market. The two complement each other in a capitalist system. State intervention through ownership or planning cannot, however, change the fundamental nature of capitalism. Many liberal economists in capitalist countries have the wishful thinking that the state can play a major role in altering the purpose of production from capital accumulation to meeting the needs of the people. They fail to realize that capital accumulation is fundamental to the capitalist system. It cannot be altered at will. Instead, the state plays an important role in facilitating the accumulation of capital. At most, the state could influence, to a very limited extent, the appropriation of products between capital and labor in order to maintain the stability of the society, and this was done only when labor was able to exert pressure. To conclude, old concepts such as state ownership of the means of production and state economic planning do not help us in any way to clarify the issue of what socialism is. Instead, they further confuse us. It is, therefore, necessary for us to seek new concepts for our analysis. 2. The Direction of the Transition and the Question of Revisionism We believe the question of revisionism should be determined by the direction of transition, instead of whether the state still owns the means of production or still practices state planning. Capitalist transition, i.e. revisionism, begins when the state machine reverses the direction of the transition from socialism and communism to capitalism. This does not mean that, at this point, the revisionists are able to complete transforming the relations of production from socialist to capitalist. The transformation itself takes time, as we have witnessed in the former Soviet Union, in Eastern European countries, and in China. In addition, we cannot judge the direction of transition by examining one single policy or one isolated event. Instead, Policies have to be evaluated in, in totality. We introduce some new concepts, capitalist project and socialist project, as tools for our analysis. The goal of capitalist projects is towards capitalism. Capital projects are concrete ways to establish, to maintain, or to expand the capitalist relations of production, and to establish, to maintain, or to reinforce the dominating and dominated relation between the owners of the means of production and the direct producers. The purpose of production in capitalist projects is value valorization. If the state is able to continue implementing capitalist projects in a consistent way during the transition, it will eventually remove the direct producers from having any control over the means of production or the product of their labor. By expanding the capitalist projects, the state, or private capital, is in a position to speed up its capital accumulation by extracting more and more surplus value from workers. The distribution of the capitalist project is based on the size of capital, constant and variable, not on the amount of work contributed. Diametrically opposed to the capitalist projects are socialist projects. 
whose direction is towards communism, when the direct producers will have control over the means of production and the product of their labor. Under socialist projects, the distribution will be, at first, according to the amount of labor contributed with serious consideration given to meeting the basic needs of people. Later, when productive forces are fully developed, distribution will then be made according to need. Socialist projects are projects designed to enhance the long-term class interest of the proletariat, and they are not the same as the so-called social welfare programs in the advanced capitalist countries. Socialist projects are economic policies or programs derived from political decisions. This is the meaning of what Mao said about, quote, politics and command, unquote. Socialist projects are designed to restrain, contain, and interrupt the accumulation of state and or private capital. We need to emphasize here that a socialist project is not simply an economic program. It includes social, political, and ideological aspects. In fact, all these aspects cannot be separated from one another. The same is true for a capitalist project. Moreover, the socialist project is not something with certain fixed and unchanged features. Rather, the socialist project itself has to go through fundamental changes during the transition towards socialism and communism. We will use concrete examples to elaborate this point later. During the transition, both socialist projects and capitalist projects are necessary. Therefore, we cannot judge the direction of the transition by one single policy or one isolated event. Instead, we need to look at the overall development to determine the direction of the transition. In the following analysis of China's transition, we will use concrete examples to show why it was necessary for the capitalist projects and socialist projects to coexist during the socialist transition, and at the same time, socialist projects competed with and replaced capitalist projects to move the society forward. In addition, we use concrete examples to show how it was possible for the revisionists to reverse the direction of transition by implementing a set of well-coordinated capitalist projects. 2. China's Concrete Experiences During the Socialist Transition As we explained earlier, there are some general and broad guidelines on the direction of transition toward communism. During what Marx calls the elementary stage of communism, the development reaches a stage when the direct producers gain control of the means of production and distribution is made, quote, to each according to his work, unquote. With the general guideline in mind, we can learn a lot from China's experiences by studying the concrete historical events of the past 40-some years. Viewing from its entirety, analysis of concrete historical events and policies in China during the period between 1949 and 1978 clearly indicated that the direction of the transition was toward communism. Therefore, it was a period of socialist transition. Deng's reform in 1979 abruptly ended the socialist transition and reversed the direction towards capitalism. Concrete policies under Deng's reform in the past 16 years clearly indicated their direction has been toward capitalism. Thus, the period from 1979 up to now is a capitalist transition. In our analysis, we will present concrete examples to demonstrate why the transition between 1949 and 1978 was socialist and how the direction of the transition was reversed by Deng's reform since 1979. Policies of different periods are examined to see whether these policies were to institute capitalist projects or to institute socialist projects. 1. The Implementation of Socialist and or Capitalist Projects A. From Land Reform to People's Commune in the Collective Sector During the period of transition towards socialism, 
both socialist projects and capitalist projects coexist. For example, during the socialist transition in China from 1949 to 1978, land reform, viewed by itself, was a capitalist project. However, land reform was a necessary part of the long-term socialist strategy. Between 1949 and 1952, land reform was completed in the newly liberated areas in China's countryside. For the first time in their lives, hundreds of millions of peasants owned a plot of land, averaging only 0.2 hectares per capita. They cultivated their land with great enthusiasm. The output of grain and cotton both went up rapidly during the three-year period between 1949 and 1952. However, by 1953 and 1954, grain production became stagnant and cotton production actually decreased sharply in both years. After 100 years of destruction from wars and even more years of total neglect by landlords, China's natural environment for agriculture was very fragile, and her extremely scarce arable land was infertile. Aside from owning very small plots of barren land, the majority of peasants owned very few productive tools. Among the poor and lower middle peasant households, which were 60% to 70% of China's peasantry, many did not even own a plow, let alone other farm tools or draft animals. Without farm tools, enthusiasm alone could no longer continue to increase production. Moreover, in 1953 and 1954, floods and drought affected large areas of farmland. Individual peasants who stood on their own were defenseless against such natural disasters. Also, any personal mishaps, such as illness or the death of a family member, would force a peasant family into debt. When debt began to mount through usury, many peasants were forced to sell their land. Before the cooperative movement began, activities in land sale and private borrowing had started to rise, as had the number of peasants who had hired themselves out as farmhands. Had there not been the cooperative movement, the tendency would have been to further polarize and to reconcentrate land ownership. Around 1954, when peasants organized themselves into mutual aid teams, they were trying to find a way out of their difficult situation. In mutual aid teams, members shared their productive instruments, draft animals, hoes, carts, etc., and their labor power with one another to increase production. They exchanged human labor power with the use of draft animals. Then, in 1955, the peasants went one step further and organized the elementary co-ops. In the elementary co-ops, Members who owned productive instruments loaned them to the co-op and received a share of the output in return. Both mutual aid teams and elementary co-ops were also capitalist projects. However, both were necessary steps toward the organization of advanced co-ops and people's communes, thus it was part of the overall socialist strategy. The advanced co-ops were organized in 1958 together with the Great Leap Forward movement. At the advanced co-op level, Peasants who had owned their productive instruments sold them to the co-ops. The distribution at this level was made only according to labor contributed. Members no longer received a share of output according to the amount of capital or dead labor they had owned. Before distribution, taxes were first paid and then a portion of gross income was put aside in the accumulation fund for investment purpose. The rest was distributed to team members according to the amount of labor they contributed during the year. Therefore. As far as distribution is concerned, the advanced co-op was a socialist project. It was precisely because land reform, mutual aid teams, and elementary co-ops were all capitalist projects that Mao believed that the Chinese Communist Party should provide the leadership for the organization of advanced co-ops and the people's communes. 
Otherwise, capitalist instead of socialist development would occur. It was at this juncture that Mao's opponents in the Chinese Communist Party fiercely fought against taking the next step. It is important to note that land reform only destroys the land tenure system when land is taken from the old landowning class and distributed among the peasants. In many cases, China included, the situation after land reform was not a stable one because peasant households who owned a small plot of land and hardly any productive instruments could not sustain themselves. In China, soon after the land reform, some peasants began to sell their land due to personal misfortune and or natural disasters. In many third world countries, the situation was similar. After the land reform, peasants could not support themselves and they eventually had to sell their land to the owners of large commercial farms. In these cases, land reform merely transferred land from the old landowning class to the new capitalist class and would thus help capitalist development. The commune system established in 1958 was the political and administrative identity that incorporated the economic organization of the advanced co-op. Under the commune system, there were three levels of ownership of the means of production, the commune, the brigade, and the team. The communes owned large productive instruments, including the irrigation and drainage systems and electric stations, available to all members of the communes. At the next level, the production brigade owned instruments that all teams could use, including the milling stations, sewing stations, etc. In addition, starting in the mid-1960s, both the communes and the brigades began to build and own industrial units that produced a variety of manufacturing products. The team was the basic accounting unit where work was assigned to members, and their work points, gongfen, were recorded and paid accordingly after the deduction for taxes, accumulation fund, welfare fund, and quota grain. The accumulation fund was for investment in farm tools, machinery, and equipment. The welfare fund was used to help those households which did not yet have any productive labor, and each member of the team, young or old, productive or unproductive, was entitled to a certain amount of grain, thus the term quota grain. During the period between 1958 and 1978, under the leadership of Mao Zedong until he died in 1976, the class forces that supported the commune as a socialist project promoted policies that favored more control by direct producers and policies that solidified the alliance between workers and peasants. Under the commune system, a young and strong member of the team who did the most strenuous work and or work that required experience and skill would earn at most 10 work points for each day worked. A team member could only earn 10 work points a day if he or she also had a good attitude toward work and was helpful to others. If he worked 300 days a year, he earned 3,000 work points during the year. An older and or weaker member who did less strenuous work that required less experience and or skill might only earn, say, six work points per day. If this person worked 200 days a year, he or she earned 1,200 work points during the year. The number of work points per day each member earned was discussed and decided by all team members during their meetings. With these work points, each claimed a share of the net income, after the deduction for accumulation fund, welfare fund, and the quota grain, of the team. The worth of a work point in money terms is calculated by the net income, after deductions, of the team divided by the total number of work points received by all team members. Team members receive part of their work points in grain and part in cash. The difference in income received from work between the strongest member and the weakest member of the team was limited to less than a ratio of 3 to 1. In addition, the young, old, and weak members were also supported by the team by receiving their quota grain not related to work. 
the socialist project eliminated earnings from non-productive work and placed a limit on the income gaps. In other words, the amount of work done, along with the intensity of the work and or the experience, skill, and attitude of workers, for the most part determined the distribution of products. The team members of the commune also had their own private plots of land, a capitalist element, where they planted some vegetables, raised some chickens, and one or two pigs to supplement their diet or to sell these products for cash. The size of these private lots was limited and little income the families earned from their private lots came mostly from their own labor. However, if the private lot were to expand without limit, see the discussion of three freedoms and one contract, higher sales from bigger lots gave families money to buy new productive tools and thus the chance of earning a higher future income from bigger sales. On the other hand, as long as the peasants could earn more from a day's labor in their private lots than the equivalent in work points, from a day's labor in the team, convincing them to give up the private lots was difficult. By the 1970s, the private plots in some very rich communes began to disappear, because the industrial shops built by the brigades and the communes during the mid-1960s began to prosper, and the worth of work points increased as a result. The higher worth of work points team members could earn by working for the team made working in their private lots unattractive. The commune system, a socialist project, benefited the majority of the peasants. For the first time in thousands of years, most Chinese peasants lived secure lives. From guaranteed quota grain, they got enough to eat. From the cash they earned from work points, they bought clothes, shoes, towels, soap, hot water bottles, and other necessities of life. Their children went to school and got an education. Barefoot doctors took care of their minor medical needs, and there were commune or county hospitals for more serious illnesses. Even though they themselves had to pay for some of the medical costs of major illnesses, these costs were low. During spring planting, they did not have to worry about buying seeds and fertilizers. The accumulation fund took care of the replacing of old tools and adding new ones. At harvest time, they did not have to be concerned with selling their crops or the fluctuating market prices. Households that did not have productive labor received the five minimum guarantees which were food, housing, medical care, caring for the aged, and burial expenses for the dead. During the winter months, when farming work was slow, the communes organized their members to build infrastructure, such as irrigation and drainage systems, roads, and electric stations. They also invest their labor heavily in land by terracing the land, filling up small creeks with soil, joining small pieces of land together to prepare for the use of agricultural machinery. During the 1970s, the communes responded to the call, quote, learn from the Dazai model, unquote, and as many as 80 million peasants participated in farmland capital construction work each year, accumulating a total of 8 billion workdays in land. It was estimated that during the early and mid-1970s, as much as 30% of the total rural labor force was devoted to land investment and the building of infrastructure.